Section 14 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 2. Chapter 6. Deliverance. The chivalry of France had failed the country at Crecy, at Poitiers, and at Agincourt. But a knight was on the road who should redeem their errors, rout the English out of France, and restore the king. The people of France, mad with wrath and shame, had risen against the knights in ill-combined revolts and insurrections, which in no wise harmed the English, but lacerated the martyred body of their country. And now a daughter of the people arose to bind those wounds, to breathe life into a dying frame, to bring peace from without and peace within. This maiden knight, this saviour of her country, was, of course, Joan of Arc. She transformed her king as she transformed her country. She made of a downhearted, decadent prince the wise organiser of the monarchy. For France and the French are of such a nature that when they are confident in their right and might, no miracle of bravery or success is difficult to them, whereas if you rob them of that intimate self-assurance, their defeat is a foregone conclusion. For the first five years after the swift following deaths of Henry V of England and Charles VI of France, the war remained at a standstill, the English predominating north of the Loire and the party of the Dauphin in the south. At Windsor, the King of France and England was a little boy, a babe of nine months old, when two crowns fell into the cradle. The child's French mother married a squire from Wales, one Owen Tudor, and thus became the grandmother of Henry the Seventh. She had little influence with her son Henry the Sixth, who was in all things the ward and pupil of his English uncles. The other king of France, the Dauphin, reigned in Berry. Men called him the King of Bourges. He was a melancholy and disheartened youth, kindly, gentle, pious, interested in books and in experiments, a patron of the new artillery but to all appearance essentially a private person. His spirit had been broken by the ambush of Montereau and by the ensuing treaty with the English, wherein his own mother had declared him inapt to reign, preferring in his place his sister Catherine, now the bride of Owen Tudor. What wonder if the young man pondered in his heart if he were not base-born? His mother's reputation made the thing likely enough. He seemed no redoubtable rival for his infant nephew at Windsor. The people murmured that there was no getting sight of him. And in fact by choice he lived sequestered in his beautiful castle of Mahon sur yevre one of the wonders of the French Renaissance, stored with the pictures, the coins, the library, the treasure which his uncle, the great collector, Jean de Berry, had united there. He lived among these curiosities like one of those courtly connoisseurs, some count of Blois or of Champagne, whose enlightened patronship proved so important in the annals of culture and of so little account in the history of France. During those five years a division of France appeared imminent, with the Loire for the frontier line, that Loire, which still appeared a suture feebly sown, 
which any quarrel, any effort, might rip open. South of the Loire, the Armagnacs were all for Charles. North of the Loire, the Burgundians inclined to England. In those difficult years, we see all the latent dualism of France, that uneasy marriage of North and South, of Frank and Roman, of federalism and unity, of the Democrat and the Autocrat, on which the succeeding centuries will play a score of variations. But then, as more than once before and since, a foreign invasion conjured the peril of civil war. One day the English regent awoke to the fact that his hold south of the Loire grew weaker day by day, and he remembered that his little nephew claimed the south no less than the north, the south, the veritable heritage of Eleanor of Aquitaine. In an evil hour for them, the English crossed the Loire and attacked the Dauphin in his vital parts. They opened the campaign by the siege of Orléans. We know that which follows, how at first all went well with them. The sixty forts they built round Orléans town. The blockade continued through the winter and spring of 1428. The hunger and despair of the unfortunate townspeople and how they offered to surrender, if not to England, at least to Burgundy, and how the regent refused that proposal, saying that English blood had won the town, and it was the due prize of English valour. The Dauphin made no effort to come to the rescue, and mused instead upon his own retreat, hesitating whether to prefer Provence or Scotland. For Orléans, it appeared the very crack of doom, and yet, the town was saved. For the second time in the history of France, a village lass of seventeen repulsed a horde of terrible invaders. Joan is indeed the very soul of her nation, all France incarnate in the bright face of a girl. As first she emerges from her enchanted oak wood, full of fairy rings and holy wells and mysterious voices, she seems to us another Valeda, a druid princess, but the pious maid who saves her country by virtue of her faith, of her hope, when no man hoped in France, and of that fervid charity we call compassion. The maid of Orléans appears the sister of Geneviève, the Gallo-Roman girl who repelled the Huns, and the young knight in armour who rides to aid the king, vowed to a great and desperate emprise, is surely akin to Roland or to Galahad, or to some knight of the Arthurian tales. And alas, on the market-place of Rouen, the murdered maid, the martyred saint, is it not Blandine who died of old at Lyon? It is the most wonderful story in the world, since that more than earthly story which came to a close on Calvary. I have neither time nor skill to tell it here. Who has not read it in the account of Joan's trial, or in Michelet, or Quichora, or in Valais de Vireville, or in Simeon Luce, or again in the recent pages of Anatole France, or of our own Andrew Lang, or the prose poems of Charles Peggy. No need for me to write of Joan of Arc, but the briefest survey of the history of France would be incomplete without its passage in her honour. Her courage and impulse, her gaiety, her faith and her innocence, fell like dew on the parched and perishing spirit of king and country. She went to the doubting Dauphin, 
secretly afraid to count himself his father's son and rightful heir sire she declared un homme dieu c'est vous et non autre she said she knew it from her heavenly patron saint louis and saint charlemagne both kings of france and in the eyes of the maid one was as true a saint as the other thus with a more than royal touch she healed her prince's secret evil when the troops saw that virgin riding in their midst seated on her grey charger her lance at rest armed at all points as a knight her black tresses falling thick and short round her pensive oval face lit up with a heavenly certitude of victory they thought her a knight out of paradise some herald angel sent to france semble chose toute divine de son fait et de la voir et de l'ouir wrote the sieur de laval to his mother as she waved her troops across the loire bidding them charge the invader with all their might and main her instinct affirmed the road to victory for any french army that is to say attack fury sacrifice of self and absolute faith in a leader the spell of terror and hopelessness which had hung like a fog over france was dispelled by the innocent magic of her courage and faith on the eighth of may fourteen twenty nine orleans was delivered a little later the king of bourges was crowned at rheims and acclaimed by a triumphant army king of france the english cause was lost but the english are obstinate it took another twenty years to drive them into the sea fresh troops poured across the channel on the twenty third of may fourteen thirty the maid herself was taken prisoner at compiegne we know how she was carried to rouen tried there by our countrymen for a witch handed over to the tender mercies of the church as a heretic and how on the thirtieth of may one year later and two years since that happy may when she had entered orleans delivered the maid was taken to the old market-place at rouen her shaven head crowned with a paper cap on which was written heretic apostate idolater tied weeping to a stake and burned alive and the very ashes of her body thrown into the seine like plato's just man reviled thrown into prison scourged blinded and put to death yet still enviable salutary to the state joan on her calvary ensured the salvation of france in fourteen thirty five the duke of burgundy concluded a treaty with king charles soon after paris rose suddenly against its english garrison and declared for france twelve years later rouen followed suit in fourteen fifty the loss of cherbourg left england not one foot of norman ground and the following year deprived her of her last hold on the south by fourteen fifty three the hundred years war was at an end calais alone remained to the invaders of all their french possessions calais not normandy men anjou paris bordeaux with that land of wine and corn rich aquitaine calais alone consoled the defeated english france was now a great power united strong no longer an anarchy of isolated atoms but organized into a whole of all the miracles of joan of arc the greatest was that she wrought in the heart of her king the gentil dauphin the king of bourges the despondent decadent prince of mansurier 
was to be a great monarch and the inaugurator of a new order of things when the english burned alive the flower of chivalry at rouen something came to an end in france and something began we may place there perhaps the close of the middle ages a french historian victor duruy takes the last years of charles the seventh to mark the opening of the modern epoch the france which existed from the time of clovis and charlemagne had borne many fruits and done many a deed that france had elaborated the feudal system had launched that great enterprise of the crusades had instituted chivalry and all the poetry of knighthood had invented scholastic theology had built the great gothic cathedrals that france is now at an end the france that begins the constituted monarchy will have perhaps a less touching a less vital originality but it possesses an incomparable dignity magnus ab integro cyclorum nascitur ordo this new france with its organized army its centralized power its system of taxes its new conception of the state this france which more and more will efface that elder france of chivalry fiefs communes provinces this france which with every successive monarch gains something in power and grace from charles the seventh to louis the fifteenth this almost modern france is obviously not only the elder daughter of the church as is her boast but the heir of the roman empire in its dangerous tradition of supremacy of monarchia. End of section fourteen.